The Healthy Alabama podcast is sponsored by Enroll Alabama, a program that enrolls Alabamians in the health insurance marketplace. Enroll Alabama is a project of AIDS Alabama. For more information, visit the website AIDSAlabama.org. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy Alabama podcast sponsored by Enroll Alabama and produced in partnership with Praise 90.1 FM WJOU. I'm David Person, host and producer. This episode, I've got two very well-informed, smart men that I'm interviewing today. Uh, One is my longtime, very good friend, close friend, one of my best friends, Kenneth Anderson, who is the Director of Multicultural Affairs for the city of Huntsville. He's also the founder of Leadership Empowerment Enterprise, and he's the host of Second Chance, which actually airs on my partner station, WJOU 90.1 FM in Huntsville. Kenny is also a mental health counselor, and joining him today is Telly Lanier, who also does counseling in fact, they, they both are certified in what is called mental health first aid. And so today we're going to talk about that and how mental health first aid can help young people in particular who are in crisis. Basically what mental health first aid is, it's um, just like regular first aid. It's first aid that is administered to someone who's having a mental health crisis or a mental health issue uh, until the proper authorities or proper help, help arrives. And uh, what it teaches people, it teaches people how to recognize some mental health disorders. It teaches people what to do if you recognize this disorder, how to refer people to get help, and all, all those good things until the proper authorities arrive or until they get the proper help they need. So we're talking about people who are in crisis. Yes. So immediate crisis. Mental mm-hmm. health first aid is designed to help us recognize immediate crisis. Yes. Kenny, do you want to add anything to what Kelly said? Yeah, I, I have uh, received the certification also. It's an annual thing that I do. I'm going to be doing it again in July to recertify so I can uh, continue to uh, make this available for people in the community. I think one of the things you just mentioned is something we need to acknowledge. Christoph St. John committed suicide, this very famous actor on Young and Restless for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But his son committed suicide. That's right. In 2014, at the age of 24. That's right. And Christoph's son, the death of his son, had a profound impact. I mean, this is sort of like in retrospect that people are assessing this journey that he was on and how it literally destroyed him physically and emotionally. And there's a very good chance that a big trigger for his suicide was the fact that he never recovered from his son's suicide. I'm so glad, and of course you guys are professionals, so it it makes sense that you would pinpoint that. Let's hover there for a minute. So what do you do, or what do you think could be done for a person whose grief is so all-encompassing? Losing a child is heart-rending for a parent. I I mean, I've got a son... My prayer is that he never that I go before he goes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to live through his death. I, mm-hmm. I think the way it's supposed to go, he's supposed to live through mine. Mm-hmm. But I can only imagine. I can imagine how horrific it would be for a parent. Yeah. So, what what do you do? What can be done to help a person in that situation? Well, one thing that I uh, 
and mental health first aid teaches us is that just like CPR has the cab, compressions, airway, breathing, we also have a mental health first aid action plan. It's called ALGI. Uh, ALGI stands for the first one. It's assess for risk and harm and suicide, and that's one of the first things that we can do. Next, personally, I think is one of the most important is to listen to a person non-judgmentally. A lot of times we don't listen to a person what they're going through. And then the next one is give reassurance and um, information. At that point, you refer people out to the proper uh, agencies where they can receive help. And then the next E is encourage professional help. And then the next one is encourage self-help and other support strategies. Uh, I think if we go through that mental health first aid action plan, whether it's dealing with depression, anxiety, or uh, any other serious mental illness, I think we can uh, actually refer people out to the proper agencies where they can get help and where they can get the help they need. A lot of times we don't recognize the signs and symptoms of depression or anxiety or things of that nature. And when we sit back and assess the situation, we can actually see some of the signs and symptoms of depression. I think that was the main thing that he was going through was uh, he sunk into a deep depression of, over his son's suicide. And, and that's what I would assume, too. So, Telly and Kenny, what I think, though, is that it's awfully difficult to reach somebody when they're in that deep of depression. So even if you go through the algae method, I mean, there has to be a certain level of compliance on their part. They have to be willing to engage with you. I can imagine putting myself in the situation. I can imagine that I might not even want to deal with anybody. I, I might want to totally remove myself and be isolated. Well, you might, and that might be one of the things that happens, which, of course, I think those people in your sphere of influence should be able to recognize. And I think that what we're doing is we're talking as much to those people who are part of that person's life as much as the person who may be experiencing it, because human nature sort of walks away from and turns away from people in distress. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it scares us. Sometimes we feel unequipped to be able to deal with the things that we're seeing that are right there in front of us. And that's why mental health first aid is so important because it teaches you to recognize the warning signs. It teaches you to be aware of those things and then be responsive to those things on both sides of that. That's whether you're the person dealing with it or the person that's watching it. But you're right. The profound feeling of sadness, grief, loss, the profound sense of feeling that this person is such a dark, deep hole that they can't get out is not just something that you can intellectualize. You know, you can't just say, go get help and think that that's everything the person needs. You know, it really requires a constant assessment of what's going on. It requires a constant awareness of oneself as well as others around them to be able to either reach out for help, to ask for help, to, you know, whatever the regimen is, if it's, if it's medication, if it's counseling, if it's staying connected to a support group, and following through with those things on a consistent basis because it's not easy to just walk out of this. So what do you do when a person just doesn't want to engage? Do you allow that person, you know, a lot of times these days we talk about giving people their space. Mm-hmm. So do you give a person who's in a deep, dark hole, do you give them their space? Or do you check on them periodically? Or do you just every day try to find out, are you ready yet? Or what do you do? It's all of the above from what you just said. <laughs> and it really, first of all, I, I could do it because I'm a mental health professional. But the average person won't be able to do it because they're not. 
And again, they're going to respond to some of the things I just mentioned. They're going to be fearful. They're going to be anxious. They're going to be uncomfortable. Uh, they're going to kind of, you know, turn their back from the process, even though, not that they don't care, but they don't feel equipped to deal with the situation. So it's all of the above. It's, it's connecting to the person on a regular basis. If that's daily, if that's every other day, if that's weekly, monthly, what, whatever it might be. It's making sure that you know enough about the situation to do something about the situation. And it even involves asking the tough questions. How do you feel? If somebody expresses some feeling of loss or deep depression, do you feel like hurting yourself? You know, these are questions the average person can't ask you without some feeling of discomfort. If somebody says, yes, I do feel depressed enough to kill myself, or they say things like, I really wish I wasn't here. I'd be better off if I was gone. Do you have a method? Do you have a plan? First of all, do you have a method? Now, when you say, do you have a method, are you yeah. talking to me as the one who's checking on them? Or? Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. It, when that should, that's why I said this is a tough conversation. Right. Because if, if I say to you, yeah, I do feel like hurting myself, and uh, you know, I have thought about suicide, you as a professional or telly, you have a plan in mind. What is that plan? Well, what do you say? Well, I'll start asking questions. Do you have a plan? That's my next question to you at that point. When oh, you say you oh, feel like it. Oh, do I have a plan yeah. to kill myself? Yeah. So have I actually begun the process? Yes. Exactly. Okay. Yes. I see. Have I thought about it? And then if you have a plan, because people have told me in counseling, yes, I have a plan. My next question is, what is that plan? You know, do you have a method? Uh, you're going to shoot yourself. You know, guys typically shoot themselves. We know that women or females tend to either hang themselves or take pills or to cut themselves. Cut their wrists. Cut right. their wrists, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So we know that there are some ways in which gender-specific kinds of things tend to happen. So I want to explore all those possibilities. Have you attempted to do it? That's another question I want to ask you. Uh, if you start talking about what I'm I want to take medications. Well, what kind of medications are you on right now? I mean, again, from a professional perspective, and that's what Telly's comment about trying to provide an opportunity for the person to seek professional help is important because that person is going to have a whole lot more skills than the average person. But the average person can also ask those questions because there may be a relationship established. Right. And we're talking about trusting a person enough to be able to share enough with them. So Telly... Following up on what Kenny is saying, once you go through this litany of questions, mm -hmm. you know, have you thought about killing yourself? Do you have a plan? What is that plan? And you get the particulars of the plan, then, then what do you say? What do you say to a person? Other than don't do it. I mean, yeah. And the other thing is that it depends on what the immediate situation calls for. If they, uh, you see them in immediate danger or them at that point, it, seems like they're going to complete suicide at that point. At that point, you need to call the proper authorities, which we teach people just call 911. And what's going to happen there is that EMS is going to get there and they're going to give them the help they need, and they're going to transport them into the proper facilities of where they need to get that help. That is the main thing we tell people is that at that point, you make sure you assess, like for the A, of harm and suicide. And when we talk about harm and suicide, we also talk about harm for yourself as well. And a lot of people, yeah, don't, don't know how to address that. If you approach someone who is thinking about suicide and they have a gun or a knife with them at that point, make sure you assess for harm for yourself. Mm. And at that point, call the proper authorities. Like we tell people at that point, don't try to be the hero. Get the proper authorities there. 
And as if the person is not in immediate danger at that point, that's when you encourage a professional help. I tell people all the time, if you have a personal relationship with that person, ask them to go with you. Come, come with mm-hmm. me. Let, let's go talk to someone. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll take you if you have that personal relationship with that person. I want to toss out a scenario to you, you gentlemen. Uh, this is a, a real-life scenario. This actually happened. A father had scheduled a counseling appointment for one of his daughters. The father did not pick the daughter up, but apparently the father had the sister of the daughter who needed the appointment to take her. The daughter who had the appointment was about to get in the car with the sister, and then she said, hang on a minute, I forgot something upstairs. Let me go get it. I'll be right back. The sister waits. sister realizes "Mm, something's not right right here. Sister goes upstairs, finds her sister, has cut her wrist, I believe. I think that's what it was. It cut her wrist. And she's dying or dead at that point. Some of these situations, it strikes me, as I reflect on that story, again, a true story, some of these situations are profoundly delicate and difficult. And I guess we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that we may, as interveners, I'm I'm talking to those of us who would attempt to intervene and help someone, we may have to just be reconciled to the fact that our intervention is not going to be enough. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I tell people all the time, 20 years as a full-time mental health counselor, I had two clients commit suicide that I'm aware of while I was actually working with them. The first one is male and female. The female committed suicide, and the last day I saw her, which just happened to be a Friday, took her life over the weekend, and I want to say that she committed suicide at home. I can't remember what the circumstances were. But this woman was somebody who I knew to be deeply depressed, and I also knew that she had the capacity to do this. It was unfortunate, but I also like felt for the first time that there are limitations to the work that I can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, she saw me five days a week in a counseling program. Wow, five days yeah. a week. Yeah, not one-on-one counseling. She was in a program. Oh, oh, I see. And she saw, and I was there five days a week. She was there five days a week. She was in my client load, mm-hmm. all right? And she committed herself. The guy, the last time I saw him, which also happened to be a Friday, was on top of the world that day. I just remember he was very upbeat, very positive, to me, it looked like, oh, boy, what a turnaround. This, is, this looks great, you know, and came back that Monday, and he was gone. He took his life over the weekend. Classic story about how we are sometimes ill-equipped to deal with the realities and the limitations of people's conditions. This was a guy who I felt was doing just fine, and I learned a valuable lesson in that as a young counselor, that it's when people sometimes seem like they're on top of the world that they have reconciled in their minds, that the answer to their misery, their pain, their loss, their grief, is to take their life. And that's what I believe was happening and what I was seeing in this person's life and experience. So you believe that you, were, that you had encountered a person, in retrospect, you believe that you had encountered a person who was at peace yes. with his decision to yes. kill himself yes. and maybe even feeling some relief. Yes which then produced this joy or yes. euphoria that yes. you saw. Yeah, because yeah. he was doing, I mean, better than I had seen him in a long time. 
and that happened. And I said all that just to say that, uh, you know, it helped me also recognize the limitations and the boundaries in my abilities. We're not superheroes as it relates to people who are dealing with difficult and devastating circumstances in their lives. We're trained to help them as best we can, and we're also trained to try to help other people recognize the signs and symptoms of those things and then be allies and advocates in that process of helping people get help. We can't, we can't save everybody, and that's one of the biggest frustrations. I'm yes. sure Kelly has yes. probably felt that and seen that. Uh, but we all as counselors, I think, recognize we want to be that person. We want to save people but we can't save everybody. Yes, and definitely with me dealing with adolescents on a regular basis, when you lose an adolescent or a young person, it just, like Kenny said, it frustrates you because you just, you, you want to you save everyone, and you have to come to the reality that we can't. And it's, I'm glad you shared this story about the young, um, the young man who committed suicide. One thing that statistics teaches us that usually people complete suicide when they're on a high. A lot of people think, okay, he's doing great now. And I'm talking about family members and friends. Oh, well, we don't have to check on John anymore. He's doing great now. Everything's good. It's actually when things seem to be better and when people are on a high, when they complete suicide more often. And, you know, the other thing that Kelly just made me think about mm -hmm. is, and I often have to reconcile the reality of this because I think this is as much a challenge as anything. In the end, suicide is really a very selfish act in the end, mm -hmm. because you now have left people to deal with the mess, mm -hmm. the emotional mess mm -hmm. of what has to happen. And I would never say that to somebody who was in the midst of depression or despair. I would never say, you know, that's a very selfish thing that you're thinking about doing. But in the end, that's what it becomes, because think about it. Here's a person who now has taken their life in their mind. Prior to that fact, they're at peace with their decision. You know, they're not going to have to deal with whatever they were dealing with until uh, they made that choice. But now you've got family members and the carnage from that emotionally. People, Christoph St. John, will never recover from in some situations. And the very pain and misery that that person who committed suicide was dealing with is now transferred mm -hmm. to the family, the friends, the loved ones, the, the people that are left behind. And now they have to somehow reconcile those emotions. So this is a very, very serious thing. But should we evaluate it from the standpoint of selfishness or from the standpoint of um, a mental illness deficiency? Because I would assume here that in many cases, what we're dealing with is what I think both of you as mental health professionals would describe as an actual sickness. Depression is an actual sickness, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so... Is it fair to call it a selfish act when the person is sick? Yeah, I think it's fair. Because, again, I'm not going to tell somebody that. I'm, I'm just trying to expand the, the conversation. And, look, there's an outcome for whatever choice we make in life. There's an outcome, uh, whatever that choice might be. And, and I think the sad thing is that if you think about mental illness and the consequence produced by mental illness, which sometimes is death. Mm -hmm. In the same way that you think about the outcome of the physical consequences of some people who die, the person who ate too much sugar and got diabetes, mm -hmm. the person who ate too much fat and got heart disease, and they die. You know, we somehow don't equate physical illness to mental illness, and we separate those two things in some interesting kinds of ways. And I'm simply saying that the self-indulgence of a person, 
that may be motivated by their mental illness or may be magnified through their mental illness, the end result demonstrates an act that other people have to carry forward for the rest of their lives. So I wouldn't say, you know what? That was very selfish of them to take their life. I'm simply saying that the fact that that person is now transferring all of that emotional baggage onto people who may not be able to handle it. And again, look at Christoph St. John. Right. I firmly believe right. he's one of many who was trying to reconcile the death of his son. He probably blamed himself. He probably owned some of that responsibility and, and probably hoped that his son would struggle through the mental illness rather than take his life. Mm-hmm. And yet what happened to his son ultimately happened to him. Mm-hmm. Very well put. Well, put any better. We would be remiss not to address one other thing since uh, we're in Alabama, we're in the Bible Belt, and I know that some people that listen to this podcast have faith of some sort. They're either Christians or something else. Suicide has been characterized by the Christian church as a sin, Telly, as a sin. Yes. Um, And historically, in many denominations, certainly I know in the denomination I grew up in, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it was viewed as the unpardonable sin. Mm. You kill yourself, mm. you're going to hell. Just mm. straight, do not pass gold, do not collect $200, you're <laughs> going straight to hell. Yeah. Okay? I've noticed, though, a shift in the thinking of some preachers and theologians on this. I want each of you to talk about it. Tell me, start with you. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts is whenever I'm doing a training, we have a piece on that exact subject in mental health first aid, and I actually stop and I focus on that piece for a while because we are in Alabama in the Bible Belt, and I make sure that whomever a person encounters that may be contemplating suicide, we make sure we tell them over and over again, please do not tell that person that they're going to hell if they complete suicide. The other thing we tell them is do not tell that person you're going to ruin everybody else's life. Mm-hmm. if they're going to complete suicide. Because a lot of times people who think about suicide and in, they're in, in a deep depression, if you tell them they're going to hell, at that point they may think hell might be a little bit better mm-hmm. than what my mm-hmm. situation right now. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people complete suicide at that point. And talking about with our religious community and the way we should face that, we tell pastors this all the time because we do do these trainings in churches or what mm-hmm. have you, and we tell them all the time that if it's your belief and your church's belief that if you complete suicide, you automatically go into hell, like you said, do not pass, go. We tell them, please bring that down a little bit. Tone it down a little bit because the thing is, is that if that person's in a deep depression, like I just said, they may think that's a better place than where they are right now. Hmm. Kenny, what do you think? I think it's unfortunate that a lot of people lead with that. I, too, grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church um, hearing that. You know, if you took your life, you would be damned to hell. Um, you know, it was actually a very scary kind of a yes. thing. Yeah, like, yes. yeah. You know, boy, I'll never take my life because I know exactly where I'm going to end up. Mm-hmm. And then life happens, and you start experiencing people's um, adversity. And you start understanding that, well, two things have happened to me. I started understanding God as being bigger than the box that we tend to put him in. Uh, but I also started understanding that people experience some heinous things in society. And who am I to judge where that person ends up as a consequence of that? I mean, what happens if I'm a young child who is abused by some adult yeah. all of my life, yeah. and they take my innocence, my virginity, and all kinds of other things, 
And at some point in my life, I cannot shake the demons of that demonic person's act. Mm-hmm. And I choose to take my life. Well, let God decide where that person ends up. Right, right, I mean, who am I to put that person in hell mm-hmm. because of something that some adult did to them, mm-hmm. you know, or some other human being did to them? And you see, you know, example after example of that throughout life. Uh, we cannot begin to imagine the living hell that some people have to deal with. Yeah in order to try to reconcile the devastation caused by some people's inhumane acts on other people. Mm. And so for me to say, you know, from a theological or even try to make a biblical point that this person is somehow going to end up in hell because they they chose to take their life and they saw that that was the only way out, you need to take a step back and let God determine that. Okay. And as I said, I've noticed, you know, uh, I've been to, uh, this is the second funeral, uh, I went to Nigel Shelby's funeral. That was the second funeral I was at, where it seemed to me that the ministers were conveying a message that did not include that caveat, you know, if you kill yourself, you're going to hell. So I sense that there is a shift in the thinking now. And then maybe, maybe what's happening is, is that ministers and theologians are realizing that if a sickness is what precipitates mm-hmm. suicide, mm-hmm. it's not like they're making a moral choice. They're making a choice based on their mental illness. Well, it's the same thing I said a few minutes ago about right. overeating. You know, yeah. I believe the Bible says something about gluttony. It does. Being a sin. Yeah, and so, or at least being something that you know mm-hmm. people shouldn't embrace in their own lives. Mm-hmm. And so, if I overeat and I die from obesity or high blood pressure or heart disease, am I going to hell because of that? I don't think so. I, I think you're more likely to go go to hell because of some choices that you made regarding your relationships with other people and your relationships with God. And two commandments, you know, love God and love man. You know, everything else has to be sorted out, and it's not left for me to determine what those things are. Kenny Anderson, Telly Lanier, thank you both for coming to talk about mental health first aid. If people want to get more information on that, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, the best way is actually to contact uh, Wellstone Behavioral Health. Uh, the number is 256-533-1970. And if they want a class to come to their church, their school, their business, Wherever, we will be there and we will train. It's a very minimum fee. It's not that much. The only cost is the cost of the booklets. And um, my motto is that I have books, I will train. So if someone (laughs) needs the training, especially when it comes to things like mental health first aid, I am there. I will train. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And people can reach out to me at Leadership Empowerment Enterprise, 256-679-4241. I'll be happy to... uh, assist you with your interest in uh, scheduling a time to have that experience of learning how to deal with people and the mental health challenges that all of us face at one time or another. You know, speaking of God, it does seem to me, for those who believe in God, it does seem to me that this would be God's work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, helping mm-hmm. people in their, in their deepest, darkest moments of despair to try to see some light and to find some hope. Mm. If that's not a godly work, I don't know what is. Absolutely right. That was Kenny Anderson and Telly Lanier talking about mental health first aid and how it can help young people in crisis and others in crisis. I'm glad that both of those men 
friends of mine were able to join us to take on this very serious topic today on the Healthy Alabama podcast. I'm David Person, host and producer of the podcast, produced in partnership with WJOU, Oakwood University Radio, Praise 90.1 FM in Huntsville. Our theme music was produced by my man DJ Bailey. He does his thing and he does it well. Until next time, be healthy.